Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is a legendary person, certainly legendary in my uh, politics-obsessed household and my Obama-obsessed household. And his new uh, podcast, Campaign HQ, is terrific. I've listened to three episodes uh, out of the six, and um, I think it's a really strong entrant into the podcast wars. Uh, David Pluff, who was a chief strategist for uh, President Obama and has uh, done many other uh, things of distinction, some of which we'll get into. Uh, you have one book came out in 2010, David, and you have a new book coming in March, right? I do. Uh, a book called The Citizen's Guide to Defeating Donald Trump. So it's uh, the question I've gotten most often in my life in politics is, what can I do and what else can I do? So I won't have all the answers, but I'm trying to capture for people all the things they can do online, offline, financially, creative, traveling to battleground states and why it matters. So thanks for thanks for raising that. That's awesome. I mean, you know, that that book should be purchased in concert with the book that my son, Sam Koppelman and Neil Kachel just wrote, uh, which is called Impeach the Case Against Donald Trump. So I think first, let's try to uh, impeach. If that doesn't work, let's let's defeat him your way. Well, um, yeah, I agree with that. And I, I'm eager to read the book. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot and be inspired. Well, I'm sure you're going to get it early and we can't wait to read yours. So, David, we've long been fascinated with um, the way you see the world. And I want to learn a little bit about the prism through which you see it. Uh, and uh, so, I, I, and, you know, there are certain things you did that are so um, different in the way that you built your career. So I wonder, have you always been a very self-directed person, uh, able to find your own North Star and follow it? And, and if so, how is that the case? And if not, how did you consciously become someone like that? Well, both of my parents are deceased. They would probably suggest I, I wasn't as self-directed in the beginning. But, you know, for me, once I got into politics, um, yeah, I just fell in love with it. Um, a, because I, you know, it makes a big difference. Like, we settle our disputes at the ballot box. And even the one time we took up arms against each other, Civil War, that was a result of an election outcome. So, you know, the stakes are enormous. And, um, you know, the wars we fight or don't, the people who die or don't, the people who get health care or don't, all directly relates to elections. So that's heady stuff. Uh, I'm also a very competitive person. So one of the things I like about politics is you win or you lose. Like, there's no BS. Um, some election cycles, it's easier to win. Some, it's easier to lose. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you are really graded in such a brutally direct and honest and transparent way. So so for me, the more I did races and, and learned, um, you know, how to be a manager and, and how to, you know, try and bring new strategies and taxes to politics, I just loved it because it was that combination of, you know, you are uh, it, it is it is one of the most deeply competitive exercises you can have. And it's time bound. Um, and, and so you can throw your, your life and everything you have into it. Right. But it is for, in my, as, as silly and dumb as politics can seem, and, and most days it does seem that way. Again, it is still for, in my view, very noble purposes. Uh, and so if you believe very strongly in the direction your world or your country, or your state or your city should take, there's nothing more important than finding somebody who shares your values and vision and do what you can to get them elected. So so for me, um, that's where really, really I drew a lot of interest and strength. Um, and I love presidential races. So once I got to that stage of my career, there's nothing like that. The Electoral College and delegates, there's, there's interesting mathematical and strategic questions and resource allocation. Uh, so my mind kind of naturally gravitates to those types of challenges. You, I mean, you said a lot of things there. Let's unpack some of them. Uh, but... Uh, you know, you briefly touched on how petty and small politics seems, certainly as opposed to an ideal of statesmanship or leadership. Uh, do you think that that kind of pettiness and smallness, which now seems to dominate, is just baked in anytime you do have uh, competitive races and then hyper competitive and smart people around them um, trying to figure out what a massive group of people are going to be moved by. Is there any way to do this that isn't, has there ever been any way to do this that isn't, uh, doesn't um, turn off and on the small and the petty stuff? Oh, I think so. I mean, listen, I, I think there's a big question for our country and, and I guess for the world is, is Donald Trump now the new normal or is this just an interregnum? And, and I still believe, and, and maybe I'm just old and naive, but that, you know, he is not the norm, that, that we are still going to have, for the most part, serious people uh, pursuing serious office. 
But again, if you look at the Obama-Romney debates, the Obama-McCain debates, the Bush-Kerry debates, Bush-Gore, um, these were serious people with different worldviews. Um, and, and again, I think social media has made it, I think, seem more silly and more short-term and, and more petty. So it's kind of been accelerated. Well, well but I, I, I want to yeah. challenge, I wanna challenge yeah. this because, yes, so I remember very well um, where we were when Obama, President Obama and Romney were debating. So that means that I also remember the way in which the game of gotcha happened on the debate that Romney won. And I remember the way that was written about. And I remember the way that it was like sports teams and the way you guys then really screwed down to win the next one. And even there with two men who were um, trying, the, you know, the, the difference to me between Trump and all the other leaders of, in my lifetime is that even the ones I disagreed with wildly, I believed were looking through their personal prism of what was best for America, and they were patriots. I, I wildly disagreed with Bush, but I never thought for a minute he was only acting out of self-interest, whereas Trump to me is. But, but so even with these high-minded people, it still turned into, for most people, uh, who kicked whose ass. Well, right. And there's one of the reasons Obama now Obama went five and one in, in presidential debates, which <laughs> is remarkable because yes. that's not his strength. Right. Let's talk about like if, if politics you want to think about as a decathlon debating was not one of his top events um, because he struggled with it, though, because it is a lot of performance. Right. I mean, he thinks about nuance and yes. on the one hand, on the other hand. And let me explain the problem. And, and that, you know, debates aren't right. suited to that. That being said, like we lost that debate. Oh God, did we lose that debate? So, so, so while there was a lot of press coverage of like he lost it, and what are the polls, and what does this mean to the race? You know, most of America's voters tuned into that, and you know they thought Obama was terrible, and those of us who prepped him were terrible, and they were right about that. So, so I think they put him on probation and assumed that the next one would be better than it was. So, yeah, there's no doubt, but I, I think I still think at the end of the day, the one thing I I, I do struggle with is we are more and more polarized. So. You know, as we think about battleground states in this next election, you know, there's only a few percentage points of people who are actually up for grabs. And then there's another cohort of people right yes. or left that might be, um, you know, at some risk of not voting. So so most of us know how we're going to vote and, and we may know how we're going to vote 10 years from now. And, and, and that makes me deeply concerned for our society. But I still think at the end of the day, um, those voters who are truly undecided, you know, they take this election very seriously. They think about it through the prism of not performance so much as, you know, who who can I relate to? Who do I think is going to improve my life? Who shares my worldview? So, um, you know, I, I still think no matter how ugly the process is, and, and it is, and how silly the process is, it is, what comes out the other side, whether it's a mayor, a governor, a senator, or a president, is people are going to be making decisions that will affect us and our kids for decades. And so that's, you know, when I talk to young people, and I get why they're deeply frustrated with our political system, is like, you know, climate change, uh, you know, Mideast wars, uh, student loan, um, you know, repayment of policy, all that's going to be decided by these people. So you got to get in the game. But our, so our, our mutual pal, David Seamus, uh, who we both think is a brilliant person, um, mm -hmm. he'd be a great guest on your podcast, by the way. Um, oh. Seamus talks about how the shock he had in doing interviews post-2016 was that so many people thought, so many of the voters who had voted for President Obama and then voted for Trump saw them as similar, saw them as agents of change. And if, if, if people are, so on the one hand, you're saying people are looking at who's going to make life better. But on the other hand, to an outsider like me, who's connected to a lot of people in your game, but is not in your game, it does sort of seem like people just threw darts at, well, this looks like it'll make things different, it, rather than really thinking about what that different looked like. Right. And I think there's going to be a bunch of those voters now uh, who are going to be absolutely critical to determining our next president. Right. And, and my view is we have an opportunity to get enough of them back. That's not all of it. But I'd say a couple of things. So, right. The outsider, um, you know, thing helped both Obama and Romney. There's no doubt about that. But the other component of this, um, which was frustrating to me, was Wait, helped Obama and Trump. 
Yeah, sorry. So Obama and yeah. Trump, right? But but yeah, I just want to but they straight, both yeah. also won, I think, the debate about kind of who's going to be on your side if you're a working person. And, you know, we won re-election against Mitt Romney in really tough economic circumstances with still a really, really high unemployment rate because at the end of the day, voters thought Obama, no matter what, uh, was going to basically make decisions with they and their family. And I think Trump won that debate. So it wasn't just that he was an outsider. They got the sense that, you know, he was going to fight for them. So that's the betrayal. And I think that's got to be central to this campaign, which is he said he was going to fight for people like you. And all he's done is take care of people like himself. And he has screwed you. Um, you know, we're beginning to see manufacturing loss in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. We know that the, uh, you know, silly trade war that he's prosecuted uh, haphazardly against trying is hurting the rural economy. So I think there's an opportunity to get a bunch of those people back. Brian, this is really important, though. I think there's a dangerous debate in the Democratic Party. There's some people who say it's all about those Obama-Trump voters and some people who say we should not worry about them at all. They're lost. We should just go after the base. It's a simple math exercise. If you want to win states like Arizona, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and you believe that Trump's going to get very strong turnout, which I think he is, you have to do it all. You simply have to do it all. And we have to have a candidate and a campaign who can do those things, who has a message that can speak to an 18-year-old on on the campus of UW in Madison and, you know, the 62-year-old iron worker from Racine, Wisconsin, who voted for Obama and Trump. Are you going to go to work for that candidate when we figure out who he or she is? Well, we'll see. I mean, what I'd say about that is, I mean, I certainly believe that if any of us can do anything to get Trump out of office, we should do that. So if they need someone to, like, go run a county in Pennsylvania for six months, I'll do that. But, I mean, generally, I hope we have a candidate and a campaign who comes out of this primary who's got a strong team, they're unified, they're they're missionaries, not mercenaries. Like, I don't think, again, Trump is an exception to this. He seemed like he had a new campaign manager every month. Generally, history suggests that campaigns with that kind of tumult don't succeed. And so uh, I hope there's a strong team. Um, you know, from campaign manager uh, on down, and they're just looking for some reinforcements. And if, if I can be one of those reinforcements, um, I think I speak for a lot of my former colleagues in Obama land as well. Um, you know, we're all years. Do you miss being, uh, because my, listen, this podcast that, that I do, although I, I could talk about the specifics of the race endlessly, I, I'm, I'm really interested in how somebody like you becomes somebody like you and what you care about now. So, I, I want to understand, like, do you miss being in the middle of it, knowing the amount of, knowing how much you understand this stuff, knowing as seemed the way you and uh, a lot of smart people missed 2016, do you wish you were really on the ground doing this now? Does part of you wish you were in it? And if not, what shifted in you? It really doesn't. So I am, you know, I'm, 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 I'm helping a group called Acronym, which is a, a digital firm, uh, which is doing really important work. Um, in the battleground states, they're setting up media properties uh, locally in states like Virginia and Ohio. So I've gotten back in a little bit because I, I do think that our outside game um, is really anemic right now. Um, but but I I say a, a few things about it. So one, you know, Barack Obama was personal to me. You know, I got to know him when he was a yes. state senator. We helped him in the U.S. Senate. We were a long shot campaign. Um, you know, I I, I think that um, for me. That was the pinnacle. And it wasn't just that he won the presidency and got reelected. I did it with somebody I knew well, who's a friend. Like, I really believe that mercenaries in politics don't do well. So, you know, I was in politics a long time. I worked for a lot of people I believe strongly in, <laughs> some not so much. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, um, could I ever be as good as I was in those Obama years? I don't think I could. Uh, that's number one, and you need to know that. And number two, um, you know, I still consider myself someone who has a good understanding of how people receive information. Uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty good with messaging. I understand the digital world pretty well, but I do think politics is for the young. Uh, and so I think the last thing we need is people from the Clinton years or Obama years kicking around, um, you know, telling people um, how things were done back in 2008 or 1992. Like, we need new talent to emerge, and they are. Look what happened in 18. All those amazing candidates and campaigns were led by people, many of them who might have been too young even to vote for in Obama's first race. So Yeah, I mean, that's an incredibly rational That's an incredibly rational way to look at it but when you're so good when one is so good at something and has demonstrated it and has been to the top of the mountain how does one take a look and decide because it's a very mature view you have and i think people can learn from this which is 
right? A lot of people can't stop. As Even if we look at these candidates, I agree with you. I'm 53 years old, and I want a president who's no older than I am, and I'd be really happy to have a younger president than, uh, than me. So Because I, I agree, I'm not that interested in the people who are going to tell all of us how the world used to be. I don't think that's useful at all. But most people can't step away from this thing that gives them such an endorphin rush. How were you able to do it? How did you make that decision? Well, first of all, again, I thought I had been to the mountaintop. So I had achieved anything a kid from Wilmington, Delaware, had any right to think they could achieve in politics, number one. Number two, that came at a huge cost to my family, my wife and my kids. You know, you, you're just not, we can all talk about, it's not about the quantity of time, it's about the quality of time. But, but in reality, when you are not around a lot and, and where you're, yes. when you're completely consumed by these things, it takes a toll, number, number two. And I really, so, so, so for me personally, I knew it was time to hang up the spikes, both because I had kind of won the game I needed to win and I needed to, to rebalance my priorities. But I really do believe, so think about, let, let's say I was running a presidential campaign today. Do I have much to offer in the way that young kids, young voters might be using TikTok? I'm not sure. Um, you know, do I understand um, the digital landscape as well as I did back in 08 and 12? I, I probably don't. Do I know all the young talent in campaigns as well as I did then? I don't. So I do think, you know, we can, um, you know, it, I don't think politics should be space cowboys. It should not be people who might have had some success sometime coming back in four, eight years later. I don't think there is crisp. Listen, I wasn't involved in the 16 campaign. Um, I, like a lot of people, thought Hillary was going to win. Um, the reason I became convinced of it in part was because I had just come through eight and 12 and I forgot, you know, in some respects that it's a much different race, different electorate, different candidates. So that to me also said, you know, maybe I'm not long in the tooth, but you know, that's dangerous to assume anything you did before in any previous election. I think this is true for sports of the private sector is somehow going to carry over, uh, even the next year, much less than four years later. So I'm very, you know, the work I'm doing with Acronym, I get to work with these brilliant young people. Um, and, you know, I learn things from them every day. And that's a reminder. So, um, again, I think I, I probably speak for most of my former colleagues in Obama. If, if our nominees need someone to go run the Philadelphia field office, right, uh, or, or ride around on the plane with them to do logistics or, or do something specific, uh, I think a bunch of us, uh, you know, would be willing to do that. But, you know, our, our nominee is going to carry into this campaign a campaign leadership and campaign strategy. Uh, and I think that they ought to stand by those folks and not look to bring a bunch of people in who, you know, did something cool a long time ago, who probably will just screw the pooch if they try and do it again. Hey man, that, um, that reference to space Cowboys is really so good. It's uh, you, I might have to take that for billions if that's okay. Absolutely. Uh, you know, well, uh, because it, it's perfect and it, it kind of would qualifies you for a visit to the writer's room. If you ever want to come by. Do you know as many as seven out of 10 adults wish they played a musical instrument? Unfortunately, many never do because they think it's either too late for them to start, too expensive, or they feel like they're not at the time. Musician is an online music education platform rethinking the way people learn music. It's the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, even singing. Download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician's award-winning tech actually listens to you play and gives real-time feedback on timing and accuracy, no need for chords or special equipment. With Musician, you'll learn to play your favorite songs faster than ever and have fun doing it. Musician is perfect whether you're just starting out or been playing for years. There's thousands of popular songs, expertly crafted lessons and exercises across dozens of genres. You'll learn theory, sheet reading, tablature too. And compared to private lessons, Musician is so much more affordable and you can learn on your own schedule. It's like, as addictive as Guitar Hero or Rock Band, but with real instruments. I'm somebody who I, I love to play guitar. I'm not very good at it, and I'm eager to use Musician to get better and better. So if you also want to learn an instrument or want help in getting back to playing, check out Musician. You can get an extended 14-day free trial of their Premium Plus package at musician.com slash play. That's unlimited lessons, unlimited songs, and as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Go to musician.com slash play to start your free trial today. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N 
dot com slash play. When I'm thinking about hearing you talk about all this, I'm, I'm trying to picture the kid who quit college. And uh, I remember uh, when we learned that in, our, in our, our household that you decided to leave college to do this. We thought, what a crazy thing for, you know, we were hearing it obviously um, after you'd been so successful. Were you nervous when you did that at all? And what was the reaction of the people around you when you did it? And then why'd you go back? after all those years later right so it's 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 it was a bigger deal back then because we didn't have technology right so you couldn't do coursework online and so yes for me um i was um in delaware and i got a call i had worked on a senate campaign in delaware in 1988 a u.s senate race when you were when you were at and i was a student it was between my junior and senior year if i recall and one of the people i worked f- with on that race joe hansen who's still a very good friend of mine um called me you know, and this is what happens in politics, uh, you know, called me and said, hey, I'm out in Iowa. I'm, I'm working for Tom Harkin, a U.S. senator. We're putting together a campaign team. Do you want to come out? And, you know, basically he's like, we'd love to have you, but I kind of need to know in 24 hours. <laughs> and, you know, so I talked it over with my parents. I, what I would say is, like, I wasn't part of young Democrats. I, I was not um, – I didn't I, – I assumed I'd go to law school, but I'd really enjoyed that campaign I worked on in 1988. I did know there was a presidential campaign coming up, and Iowa is – you know, kind of the it is the field of dreams uh, if you want to work in presidential campaigns. And I thought this is a unique opportunity. I also never been to Iowa. And so it was a snap decision. Think about it. If I had made a different decision, I hope I'd have a good life and will have contributed. But I probably would have never worked in politics again. So it, it's funny. You look back on life like I had 24 hours to make that decision. And if I had said no, you know, I'm sure I, I might have voted for Barack Obama. I would hope I would have, but I would have never met him, and I probably wouldn't have worked in politics. I said yes. Well, yeah, I packed that's up a my real blink. It's a real Gladwell. Yeah. It's a real Malcolm Gladwell kind of a blink decision that you made. Right, and you know, I, I packed up my Dodge Colt and which barely made it, you know, from from Delaware to, to Iowa, and you know, never really looked back. Politics became my profession, so I always assumed like, well, I'll work in Iowa. And then I'll go back to school after that. And, you know, it, it just became something where, you know, I went to the next campaign and the next campaign and worked in government. And it was really after 08, you know, I talked to my wife and she's like, you know, we have kids now. Um, you know, I, I think it'd be really important the message you send to them, even with all your success, you know, that you finished up. It's important to be a college graduate. We certainly don't want our kids to be. Um, and also that, you know, you you went back and, and, ta- and took it seriously, which I did. And like I took a nutrition class and a math class. By the way, it was really hard. Um, Did you ever wonder about... So I've known a couple of very successful people who weren't college graduates and and some of whom it it kind of haunted at various times in their their lives in, in a way where they just wondered about that decision or felt something was lacking. Did you have those feelings at all or or not? You know, it's I didn't really because first of all, you know, I had come close to completing my coursework. I'd gone on and built a career, um, yes. and 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 really had done been part of some amazing um, experiences. So so for me, it was like that was clearly the right decision. So I didn't. But once I finished up and graduated, and I went back to campus, uh, then I did. Then I I thought my life would have been poorer if I didn't do this. In part because that. you put yeah. all this time in and and you didn't complete it. And, and particularly now where you can do, I had to go to back to campus, I think maybe once, but other than that, everything was done online. Like, what was my excuse other than I was lazy or I didn't think I needed it? So um, I look back on it in, as, as um, it's interesting. If I hadn't tried to complete, would I have deeply regretted it? I don't know. But in the aftermath of it, uh, you know, it's one of the things, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of and, and was really a smart decision. And I give my wife credit for really pushing me to do it. Did did you that 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 all makes sense to me and that that all tracks. Um, and I love that you I love that you went back and I also love that that you quit when you when you did it. Did it's funny. My, so my son left college for a semester. He was on the Hillary's campaign and and I wonder if they won. He ended up going back and finishing, but I wonder what would have happened if they won because he was speechwriter. You know, would he have just ended up doing that and not? finished um which is part of i think why we were talking about you you know at the time it was like how, how do you how do you frame this i've yeah i've i've had to have this conversation with a lot of people either either because of my experience or they're just asking uh and i always say listen everybody's different 
But but if you're passionate about something and you have a chance for three months or six months or a year uh, to go um, work on a campaign or go work in the White House or in a governor's mansion, you should do it. Uh, now, I'd also yes. then commit yourself to finishing your schooling. But, you know, uh, I mean, you, you know, you're 53, I'm 52. Uh, you know, as you get get to our age, you're reminded every day how short this life is. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's you, for sure. You, so, so imagine that, like you had a chance to go work on a campaign and help elect a president and you didn't do it. So you finished school on time. Like, I'm pretty sure on balance, your life is richer for having gone, worked on the campaign. So I think these opportunities have to be seized. And, and it, again, it's a lot easier with technology. I think if you, if you do take a little break to come back and finish up, uh, I think so too. When, when, when you were a young person, were you, because um, you said, you know, politics, you, you, you love it. You've always been fascinated by it. Were you um, always interested in power structures and how groups think? Like, were you a leader when you were a kid? Was it um, just an innate thing or was it um, sort of a, um, an outside in thing where you looked at the world and saw, well, I better learn about this stuff? How did that stuff manifest for you? Yeah, it was more the latter. I mean, I was I was really fascinated by elections. I mean, I remember, you know. I was probably seven. I remember watching the Watergate hearings. And, you know, yes. I, if I recall, I think I was class rep for John Anderson, you know, in the 19... Uh-huh. Uh, the third, uh, the third party race. candidate. Yeah, of course. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I was really, I was fascinated by the maps and the electoral college and, and, and all of it was really deeply interesting to me. Um, uh, and, you know, I studied obviously in school the constitution and and congress and the civil rights and labor movements and and all these things became you know kind of where it led me was none of that stuff happens if we don't elect the right people and so uh to me that made me deeply interested in politics and you know for a young kid to be working even on a u.s senate race is pretty heady stuff it's like well there's only a hundred of them and if i can be help you know somewhat uh helpful to getting a, a good person in there that matters and so Again, I look at elections as the route to progress or lack of progress. And and so um, but for me, no, I, I don't think I was a leader at a young age. Um, but, the, you know, in campaigns and in organizations, I mean, I you know, you know this, like people are what makes it great and what makes it hard <laughs> uh, yes. because they're human beings. Same thing with families. I mean, so 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 the, the, the best experiences are when you get a group of people. Um, they trust each other. They believe in each other. They know their lanes, and everybody's rowing in the same direction at the same speed. That's awesome. One of the reasons, by the way, that's easier in a campaign than a business, I think, or academia or government is you have that time bound. Maybe you find the same experience when you're filming a, a season, like yeah. that. It is such a great forcing function. It's like, you know, because I've been through campaigns where like, if this was like a fire enterprise, I think we'd probably all hate each other. But for like this year, man, we are in it together and and i that clock looming in the background i do i do think forces not just great productivity and work but also it can help with culture because you realize you just don't have any time for any nonsense like you have to put it all on the line every day and so i i I think it's harder to build that in something that's like quarter after quarter year after year yeah, because that thing of going through the wars together, um, when you are you you you're you work intensely to to for this goal, and uh, and then you've completed it, and you can you know I found that in the movie when we would do movies, um, you do a movie, you work incredibly hard for this short period of time, and then you go your separate ways, and it does help clarify. Did did you read a lot of? How did you become expert on behavioral science to the extent that you use that, which I know you do. How did you read a lot of like uh, these various, you know, Tversky and Kahneman and Jonathan Haidt? And how did you start? Did you start to develop your own ideas about behavioral science? Did you look at data primarily? How did that how did you start thinking about that stuff? Right. Well, I'm, you know, obviously not a behavioral scientist by training. So, uh, you know, any, you know, whether it's a book or an article or a new piece of data on, you know, uh, how people behave and what they respond to. I'm deeply interested in that. But, you know, I also had the benefit in politics. You spend a lot of time with voters doing research. Uh, and, and honestly, for me, qualitative research um, has always been the most interesting, where you're just listening to people talk about their lives. By the way, I think sometimes the best business research and political research, and I would assume the same is true for entertainment, 
is not where you're force feeding people questions about politics or business or entertainment. Right. You're just listening to them talk about their lives. And, and through that, you're going to learn how you can factor into it or not. So, so for me, one of the pleasures of my life really was for most of my professional life, whether it was, you know, campaigns at a, at a congressional or state level or national is really um, listening to people. And so, and, and that's really less about politics than it is how they get information, the entertainment they're, um, you know, uh, y- y- you know, utilizing, um, how they get news, uh, you know, the economy, education, healthcare. Um, and so that is such an important foundation, I think, for me, uh, and gives me a really good sense of, you know, how people respond to information and messaging. So it's it's some of the, so some of that's data, some of it's academic, some of it's listening and, and learning from great thinkers. But a lot of it is, you know, you're just you have an oar in the water or a line in the water at all times, <laughs> and you're kind of getting feedback. Sure. Um, I mean, this is going to sound super dorky. You know, you mentioned David Seamus. I think David Seamus, you know, who 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 was part of the Obama enterprise and is now helping lead the Obama Foundation. Like, like, like David. Like, if I could literally have my computer uh, open twelve hours a day and just have live qualitative focus groups going on, I'd be super happy. Uh, and just feeding people something in the news and how they respond to it. Right. Yes. Uh, and and then just sort of taking uh, taking from that, and and, and then. How do you avoid, though, the anecdotal, just responding sort of like to the last bunch of anecdotes that that you heard? How do you collate that into something that feels like um, a message? Well, it's a blend, right? So, yeah, if you over-index for qualitative and the anecdotal, you're going to make a big mistake. But if you're blending that with big sample sizes from a data standpoint, quantitative research, you know, your own gut, your own history, you know, that's where the magic comes in, Right. But I think one of the interesting things with qualitative research is, one, it can be leading edge. So conversations show up in a way that they might before, you know, in a traditional poll. But also the language, you know, uh, the average consumer or voter uses is different than someone like me who's a practitioner. So some of the best lines, you know, that I've seen used in speeches or in ads didn't come from professionals. They came from people in, you know, research settings um, that was like, wow, I never thought about it that way. Or the, the way they put that was so powerful. Um, and so, so that's important as well. So, so it's a blend, I think. Um, but then in politics, I mean, politics needs to be authentic to the candidate. So, you know, uh, you know, I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to through my career who wanted to either seek office for the first time or wanted to seek a promotion who, when you talk about why are you running or what are you going to run and say, well, that's why I hire you. And you need to run as far away from those people as possible. Like this needs right. to start with the person understanding why I, why me, why I am seeking this particular office at this particular time and what I'm going to do with it. And if they don't do that, they are almost certainly going to lose. They should lose. And I certainly wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to work for them. And how do you, how do you, in making a decision about somebody, because I understand exactly why they need to feel that way and say that. But the cult of personality messianic leader also feels that way. And, and, and have, those people have come close and one won the office. And how do we guard against, yes, you want someone who thinks they have the answers. On the other hand, you don't want someone who thinks they have all the answers. So how do you, how do you think about that? That's a great question. Um, you know, and campaigning has some um, resemblance to governing, and then other cases, it's it's completely different. I do think people yeah. want to be inspired, so I think in a campaign, you have to paint a vision for, you know, even if you're not going to accomplish everything you want to accomplish, what you could if you it could if if you had a blank slate, here's what you do. I, I think that's really uh, important. Um, but um, and I, and I, but I, I think that um, and listen, somebody who is a brilliant issue person. Um, yes. If they can't communicate it, if they can't motivate, they're just not going to be successful in governing Um, because, you know, you need to persuade people. You need to get the public on your side. You need to be able to control members of your own party. So, um, you know, the truth is, have we ever had somebody who had all of it? I don't think we have. You know, even like LBJ, who I'm a big fan of, but people always say, I remember during the Obama years. Well, Obama's no LBJ. 
you know, he he can't get everything done in Congress he'd like. It's like LBJ lost half the Democrats on the civil rights votes. Right. So so even his own party, you know, and again, our party was different then. But but, you know, mythologies becomes a very, very strong thing. I mean, even Abraham Lincoln, OK, who's my favorite president, was Barack Obama's favorite president. I mean, some of the things he said about African-Americans. Um, you know, about inferiority with, you know, in terms of morals and intelligence. I mean, I'd like to think he didn't think those things. He, he thought those what he had to say. But uh, I don't know. That to me is dangerous, by the way. There's a mythology that sets in. And, and everybody who's currently engaged in public life is a buffoon and an idiot. And the people that came before them were awesome. Um, and when you look under the hood, they all had warts and they all had moments where. Um, well, yes, you'd, but, you'd but you want to be collect. clear that the, the, when we say the guy currently in the office is a buffoon, you do think so. I just want to I just want to well, make sure we're clear yeah, that the guy yeah, in the office his, is a buffoon. Yeah, I mean, I still I mean, Brian, there are days, I, I, many days where I, I still I still can't believe we elected him. I still can't believe Me somebody too, who is of this character, lack of intellectual curiosity, who's probably a sociopath, certainly has narcissistic personality disorder order uh that that this person is the president of the united states i mean it is still um it is still hard for me to believe now he only got 46 one percent of the vote it was kind of a black swan election but it is but but what concerns me is the republican party like we need a healthy strong republican party and you know with some exceptions we don't have that right now um and i worry about that is even if trump loses the question is how much of trumpism remains in the Republican Party. And, um, you know, I, I do think there may be some return to normalcy, but I think strains of Trumpism are going to be in that party, you know, at least for a generation. So it, it that worries me uh, greatly. But having worked in the White House, having been in the Situation Room, having done really yes. weighty meetings in the Oval Office, to think about this guy uh, and the way he operates, the way he thinks, uh, in those, like, hallowed... I was always huh. very mindful of the history and that I was there for just a short period of time, and there was a lot of people there before me, and there would be after. And in a way, you're kind of just carrying the baton for a while. He doesn't. I actually think he thinks it's like his country, it's his building, yes. you know, it's his world, uh, and it is so distressing. Um, uh, and and the, and and you think about all that, which is maybe some people were conned. Now he wins. You think that, you know, he'd lose in a landslide and that's not going to happen. I think this is going to be a brutally, brutally tough election. I don't know if we'll have, you know, Bobby Axelrod on the side helping make things happen for us, but we're, we're going to need a lot of help. Listen, to, if, uh, uh, I, can, get this if I could lend you Bobby Axelrod, yeah. I would. Um, well, but this leads to, um, you know, I was I was trying to remember, like, all these philosophers who have said, you know, starting with Plato in a way, but so many philosophers who have sort of said, that democracy has to end in fascism or something like it. And, you know, lowest common denominator over time, the, you know, the, the group that's out of, um, out of power feels like they've been disadvantaged, wants to put forth a charismatic kind of buffoonish, powerful figure. And whether that figure comes from the left, like in Cuba, or comes from the right, um, like, you know, uh, many throughout time. It, it, it that it has to happen now we grew up both of us in a time of sort of an um, unending hope for the possibility of democracy right we were both born into a country that was still incredibly segregated that really wasn't um, a democracy and then we lived for a brief time when it really seemed like everyone was working toward that being the case for me you know the high point being your time President Obama's time but I uh, are you fatalistic about this stuff, or do you find a way to have hope? I do find a way to uh, have hope, but I'm pretty dark about it. Now, I will say, you know, if you look at Europe where, you know, there were some really negative trend lines, you know, you had yeah. Macron's election, uh, you had, you know, uh, you know some, some decent election outcomes. In Germany, we had Trudeau just winning, um, you know, up north this week. So, you know... Um, to the extent we thought that authoritarianism and dangerous populism and nativism was on the rise, you know, there's some pushback to it. But, you know, you only have to be a casual student of history to understand that, you know, the length of empires is not forever. And, you know, this social democratic experiment, both here and in other parts of the world, uh, is going to be sorely tested. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is we have probably a third of our citizens right now who do think it's okay uh, to have rank corruption in the White House, to ask foreign governments to get involved. The media is evil. Um, you know, uh, 
think about that. I mean, we we have some of the most so, important yeah, bedrocks. Yeah, yeah. So, so no, this was a question I was going to ask you right on this note, which is, do 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 you understand though? Because you say a third of the voters, and 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 I think it's really easy for for even a professional like you. Um, or someone like me watch this stuff closely to, to uh, ascribe to these people all sorts of characteristics of Trump and his ilk. So what I'm wondering about is, do you understand the voter who thinks she's not racist, but supports racist policymakers? And how do we speak to her? Like, how how do we, or do we ignore those, you know, by now Trump's so shown himself, do we ignore that third of the voters and write them off and only focus on the other two-thirds of the people. How do you look at that? Well, from a governing standpoint, you have to make decisions for everybody. From a political standpoint, I certainly would write them off, right? So uh, I, I think yes. that, um, and, and you know, th- the question is, does that third get larger? So think about that. There's three people out in a park or in a restaurant, and one of them, you know, thinks the media is the enemy of the people, um, thinks it's okay for foreign governments to get involved and, and interfere uh, in our election, um, that's scary stuff. So it's far too many. But but from a purely political standpoint, yes. I wouldn't worry about that. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and demography, maybe not as near-term destiny, but we know that the growth areas of the electorate are going to much more, um, uh, you know, going to be much more helpful to the Democratic Party and progressives in the long run. Um, and so in this next election, we have to maximize that, young people, minority voters, registration and turnout. But there are people in the middle, and it's not just the Obama-Trump voters. We talked about those previously. There are some people who voted for Clinton last time, uh, you know, who may be a little more higher income, who still don't like Trump's behavior, but the economy's been pretty good for them. And so so they're going to be conflicted. And so um, we have to understand that this election, there's going to be different pockets of voters, both base voters and turnout uh, targets and persuasion voters that are very not, they are not monolithic. Um, and it's going to take great skill by our nominee to understand that and execute a campaign to reach them. But but no, I think our goal is not to convince 100 percent of Donald Trump supporters to come to our side. By the way, in this election, we just need a small, 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 small fraction of them. But in the long term, um, you know, I think the question is, it's interesting from a data standpoint. So the, the people who are Republicans or, or who voted for Trump, who do have concerns about Ukraine, who have concerns about yes. uh, racism and misogyny, who have, you know, maybe they're younger conservatives and have concerns about climate change. That's a target-rich environment. Um, and so um, that, to me, by the way, this impeachment thing's interesting, so I shouldn't say that so casually. It's obviously deadly serious. But let's say he doesn't get um, convicted. Let's say he gets impeached by the House, not convicted by the Senate. Yes. Well, right now you have over 50% of the country saying he should be impeached. So think about it from an election standpoint, how valuable that data is. So here's people, uh, more than we need to win the election, who are saying he should have been impeached. You know, with good data and modeling, you can have a pretty good sense of who those people are. So, again, I get excited about that politically because, you know, just as the third party, Weld, Joe Walsh, they're, you know, they're not going to beat Trump. They may not even get much vote, but they're going to get some vote. And if I were the Democratic nominee, I'd say, you know what, I'm going to speak to some of those people. Even if most of those Republicans come home, some may not. So so again, from a political standpoint, the more revelatory, um, you know, numbers can be. And so here you've got these events, a third, some third party challenges against Trump and an impeachment proceeding. And people who are not siding with Trump on either of those issues, um, I think, you know, some of them are gettable. And, and that's incredibly valuable data. Have you given a lot of thought to why people vote against their own interest? Um, and and that once they do, they sort of anchor to that belief, and then it's really hard to knock them off of that belief. How, why, what do you think is the how what do you think that is? Why do people sort of uh, not really look at in a realistic way? the policies and 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 if it's the case that people don't really look at the policies and i think it is the case that they don't why does the media spend so much time talking about the policies and why do the debates spend so much time talking about the right. policies? well i you know i think it's dangerous to play anthropologist in politics right and so i um have a strong reaction to that question um which i get all the time i got it i was in los angeles last week and got it there why do people vote against their self-interest I don't think we should tell people what their self-interest is. These voters have determined maybe they care about, um, you know, uh, 
you know, the Second Amendment. Maybe they care about abortion. Maybe they, uh, even though a government program may help them, they want government spending to come down. So, so we can look at it academically and say these types of voters would be numerically better off with Democrats because Democrats might invest in this area or, you know, uh, create this government program that might help them. But, you know, I, I think it's dangerous to suggest that voters are voting against their best interest, at, at least in terms of the, the way we transact politics, because I think that comes across as really elitist and really dangerous. And again, when I've, I've spent a lot of time with voters who voted against candidates I worked for, uh, and when they talk about why they're voting against them, you know, I mean, A, partisanship is just very strong, but, you know, they, they may care about, um, and I know there can be, that, that seems... Um, Uh, inconsistent Um, when voters say, I want a smaller government and I want um, uh, to spend less. But yeah, I like that program. You know, the famous sign during, you know, the Affordable Care Act debate, which is get, get, you know, get your hands off my Medicare. So, um, but, but at the end of the day, I think this is a dangerous trap to go down um, uh, because again, there was actually a really interesting story recently in the, I think it was in the New York Times that talked about, um, you know, a lot of the voters Democrats need to, to get back and, and they went to a town I can't believe, remember where it was, but like all the promises to spend more money uh, and create new programs as worthwhile as they may be and they probably are was was hurting us with those voters. So I, I think we have to understand the route to building support. And this is important, by the way, because because, you know, the House of Representatives, um, you know, gerrymandering is part of the problem. Um, and we won it back, thankfully, uh, in a heroic way in 18. But the other problem is our support has become more dense in urban areas. This is a huge problem in the Senate. I'd say right now the Democrats' max number of Senate seats is probably 52, 54 at the top. Um, right. For us to get back to 60 again, has to, we have to do better in the plain states in the South. And that means we have to do better in exurban areas and rural areas and outer suburban areas. Now, some in the party may say we don't need to do that. Well, that's crazy because if we want to actually have Senate majorities more often than not, and if we want to retain the House, and if we want to do well in state legislatures and elect governors to red states that are current, you know, the current red states, um, we have to strengthen our appeal outside of, you know, the areas where we're strong right now. We just have to. Um, and I don't think the route to do that is center the messaging on, you know, the amount of billions of dollars we're going to spend on programs. That can be part of the message. But I, I think we, we and, and again, I'm going to get a lot of criticism for saying that because that, that seems like defeatist and you're excusing racism and you're excusing misogyny. I'm not doing any of those things. But, you know, you got to meet people where they are. Um, and I think we have to understand that. So this notion that voters are voting against their best interests, I think those voters would take huge issue with that, and I think they should. Well, of course they. Well, uh, so of course they would take issue with it. I don't think it's elitist to say. I would say I, my disagreement is I don't think it's elitist to look at the results of some of the votes that they've made, and then the uh, their fortunes. And and you can do the math and say that was acting against their interest, and that's right. That's part of the argument we'd build about why what Trump sold them was a bill of goods that wasn't real. Well, um, you're right. And, but and I, so the, I think that the challenge then is to marry that, the, the, the data and the reality right. with the messaging. Now, so Kansas is an interesting standpoint uh, question where, you know, the, the, the cuts in Kansas that Governor Brownback put forward were so extreme uh, yes. and hurt so many people that there was a reaction to that. Um, and Democrats actually have been on the rebound in Kansas. And so I think there's, in fact, I'd spent a lot of time now, not everybody went as far as Brownback did. Um, but the truth is that is a good example where there was a reaction to policy that was hurting people who elected the people who promulgated those policies. Right. That's great. And to me, that gives me some, uh, hope as, as in a way that, people can react rationally to that stuff so lastly uh uh, just a quick bundle of questions all around your podcast and that is why do you do it uh who's your ideal listener who are you speaking to you know and what do you listen to now or read to educate yourself well there's so many great podcasts out there your podcast um preet barra's the pod save podcast uh david axelrod's uh podcast obviously the daily so it's kind of like 
um, you know, it almost like there's anxiety when you talk to somebody about a new show they're watching because you <laughs> haven't watched it, you hadn't yes. heard about it. Same thing with podcasts. So, so I'm mindful that the the last thing anybody needs is something that's repetitive. But I thought, given my background, you know, leading presidential campaigns, a podcast where we kind of went deep. So I just recorded a, an episode today with someone who I consider to be the leading expert on delegates. So let's understand these things called delegates, and that's how we select a Democratic. Uh, nominee and how are they awarded and and what strategies do you need to deploy to get them i'm having on campaign managers and and strategists from the campaigns just to go a little deeper so it's less about what happened this week or let's analyze last night's debate it's like let's talk about your campaign strategy and your path so who are you speaking to uh as a listener so it's really people who who are following these races carefully. So in the primary, it's people who are volunteering or donating to some of the primary um, candidates. It's young people who may be studying politics uh, in college. It's journalists who are covering the race. So that's really my audience. The general election probably gets a little more broader because more people are paying attention. But there I'll go really deep on battleground states, <laughs> you know, and, and not just the states, but media markets within them and counties and really understand the pathway to victory for Trump and his opponents. Uh, in these states, so so I think that um, it's a it's a it's it's I think uh, maybe niche audiences there isn't the right word, but but it's it's an audience of people who are political nerds or paying close attention who just want to learn a little bit more about campaign strategy and tactics in the process a little more deeply than they're getting in the day to day coverage. That makes complete sense. David, I know your time is valuable. I want to really thank you for spending it with me. We are are you on any social media? Are you on Twitter? I am. I'm at David Pluff on Twitter, um, and I go between, you know, going on the platform daily and pontificating and putting my phone away and wanting to get away uh, from it as much as possible, like uh, the rest of us. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think what what's interesting about this election, particularly if you're a Democrat, now we got to understand, like Trump's base is going to be as panicked about this election as ours, right? Because they're gonna they don't want to lose their champion. How can yes. we lose it to the socialist elite horde? But I think there's going to be a lot of anxiety around this election. So, you know, the other thing I want to break down in the podcast is just what matters and what doesn't, because when everything matters, nothing matters. And so For I sure. think it's just I'm going to try and bring a little bit more sobriety to the to, to hopefully the discussion so people can understand what do I really have to freak out about? What's in my control? What's not in my control? Because um, I, you know, I feel bad for a nominee, by the way. Think about the pressure that person's going to have. They come out of this primary. They've won yeah. a, a brutally tough fight. And they're the person between Donald Trump and a second term. I mean, just, you know, from a human standpoint, not the X's and O's of the campaign, not their like clever debate line. They're going to be wearing that coat, that heavy coat every day. Um, and I can't imagine that kind of pressure. I, I think it's going to no, be enormous. So we need to have sympathy for that person. I, I agree. Let's have sympathy in advance. People, you can find David Pluff on Twitter, as he just said. You can listen to his terrific podcast, uh, which uh, I've, as I say, I've listened to three of the episodes already, and I'm going to keep going. Uh, David, thanks for taking the time. Everybody else, you can find me at Brian Koppelman uh, on Twitter, or uh, you can email me the moment, BK, at gmail.com and david i hope i can talk to you again as we get into the general election and pick your brain about what's going on would love to uh, obviously enormous fan both of your podcasts but all the great work you're doing out there billions eager for your uh your uber project and and just uh, couldn't be uh, a bigger admirer and, Thanks, and say hello to your son and, and thank him for all he did for barack obama back in the day i will all right be well thanks a lot man thanks <laughs>